Alrighty, we are here again. Uh, what is a couple of, couple of years ago? We had a a winter where about every Wednesday night we had to cancel for like a period of like four or five weeks in a row. Uh, and I guess this week God said uh, it's going to be Sunday. <laughs> so um, we're in Revelation chapter two, and uh, we're going through these these seven churches and uh, looking at how the God of lights uh, is, is among his churches here in, in Revelation, these seven churches, and he addresses them as lamps, and, and, and he's trying to get them to monitor. Is my, am I off? Okay, I, was, I thought I was getting a signal here. Um, and uh, he's, he's trying to uh, tell them how to be lights in the world around them, in an extremely dark world, um, as we're going to see. Uh, over the next several messages, uh, and even in today. And, and so we're, we're looking at the church of Smyrna today. And what's interesting is we get into Smyrna, we're going to read the text in just a little bit. We think, well, what kind of a sermon can this be? It's only four verses, uh, and, and this is one of the churches that he doesn't have anything bad to say about. You know, we, we see some of these churches where he has to sandwich and has to kind of come up with something nice to say about them. Uh, and, and he doesn't have to really try too hard for, for this church. This is not a church with anything that they need to fix. Well, if you're, if you're a church that doesn't have to fix too much, I'm not saying that they were perfect, obviously. They, they probably had some sins, uh, I would say, that, that you know, some people in the church are committing, not too many perfect people around. Uh, but they didn't have what we would call like a, a communal sin. They didn't have like something that was indicative of this church in this particular time. Uh, whereas we see with, with a lot of them, the church in Ephesus seems to have kind of something that's generally indicative of the whole or greater part of the congregation. And, and Smyrna is not like that. So what is there to maintain? What, what is there to, to tell these people? As we're going to see, there, there's some, some good things uh, to get through, even for, for churches that, that might not be in a situation like Ephesus or, uh, you know, later on, uh, Pergamos or what, what, what have you. Uh, but let's get to our text, and we're going to look at some interesting things here. So uh, Revelation 2, we're going to begin in verse 8. He says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died, who came to life again. Now I know your affliction and your poverty, however you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil is about to put some of you in prison and test you, and you will be, uh, be persecuted for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, to let him hear, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, when we read a short section like this, maybe our attention is drawn to this or that. But I want to get to what a lot of our attention is drawn to, because when we, we do uh, read things like this, we, we get, and especially understanding that Revelation is a prophetic book, we get drawn to some of the, uh, the, the symbolism of things, and there is symbolism in these, even though they are literal messages. We talked about how um, that even though the, the actual message that he's trying to get across is, is literal, what he's trying to get them, you, we can look at this and the message he wants to leave us with is he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. That's the message he wants to leave us with. 
uh, that you don't have to interpret anything. You don't have to figure out any symbolism. But there is symbolism in here. And, and I think really one of the, the main things that we're drawn to when we read this is this idea about being persecuted for 10 days. What does that mean? Uh, and so we're going to look at some things that this could mean. Uh, a lot of times, in, I think in Revelation, it's very good for us to be cautious when we are trying to interpret things. We can uh, make bold statements and, and, um, and rush in where angels fear to trod. <laughs> Uh, and make statements about things that we don't know. So we're going to give some, some different things that this could be. Uh, again, this is where our attention tends to be drawn, even though this is not really the main takeaway. It's, it's Of all the details in this section, it's probably the least important for us. It might have been more important for them to understand what this meant. Uh, but for us, looking back at it, it's not really that important. Uh, but our attention gets drawn there, but it will help us I think in the future of looking through the book of Revelation as we, we start into the class here in March to understand how some of these prophetic numbers and things like that work. Um, <clears throat> there is no scenario that I could see in, in looking at history uh, where persecution happens for a week and a half, right? That would be the first thing I would look at. Let's, let's, uh, my... my method of interpretation has always been to look at it literally first. Absolutely. Look at something as though it's literal unless you can't, unless it seems really ridiculous to, to interpret it literally. Then we, we look for an alternative way. Well, um, there's really no persecution that happens for 240 hours. Uh, even if, if things were severe, if I was going to suffer for 240 hours, I would probably wouldn't consider that persecution. Persecution seems to be like, to me, an extended period of something. Right? You're going through something, uh, and um, uh, I saw uh, someone uh, forwarded me an email uh, here coming up in March. The, the Voice of the Martyrs is going to present something, uh, which is, to me, a, a, a good uh, Something I'd like to watch anyway, and I don't—I I can't remember the exact date, or I know it's in the evening on a, on one of, a Friday in, in March. But but they're going to have a video uh, featuring two people that were uh, in persecution. One of them actually in Turkey. Uh, here we are talking about Turkey, and and here's a a guy who's been held and it was a a political prisoner uh, as a preacher in Turkey. And, um, and so talking about his experiences, and I don't know what religion or what faith or what have you, but, but interesting. Uh, but he was held for a long period of time. That's persecution. If he would have been in jail for 10 days and let out, I don't think anybody would. He would consider that a significant inconvenience, uh, scary. Uh, but I don't think a church that had a problem for 10 days would, would con and then, you know, along comes a legal situation and everything's dismissed and out. We probably wouldn't consider that persecution. So we're probably looking at something more significant. Uh, so, so there's a couple of ways that we, we could figure this out. Ten days can be a lot of times the word ten in the Bible. I want to get very, uh, be very cautious again with how we use symbolism for numbers. Um, but, but a lot of times the Bible uses ten the way in our English system, we, we say dozen, right? Uh, I got a dozen things to do today. You know, uh, remember Job in his speech, he says, you guys, you, you, these 10 speeches, you've, you know, that you, you've, these 10 times you've accused me and, and all these things. Well, we, when we count the speeches, there were actually six at that point in time. 
why did he say 10? Uh, uh, coming out of the wilderness, God says, you've, you've tested me these 10 times. And I think if we go through and count them up, they're not 10 literal times that they had tested. There's a, just a few. Uh, but, but sometimes 10 gets used to as just a round number to say, you're doing this a lot. And, and so he could be just saying simply, um, uh, you know, you're going you're gonna to have some persecution for a little while. You, you might want to settle in. Um, there's more than that, though. Uh, there's more possible ways for us to interpret that. And I'm not going to tell you which one I think, um, because I don't know. Uh, I, can, I can go back and forth. Uh, so, so if it sounds like I'm leaning towards one, maybe, you, maybe I'm leaning towards one and you picked the right one, but I really don't know. But it can represent a number of persecutions. Um, there were, under the period of Rome, if we start from Nero, uh, there were uh, 10 periods. Uh, sometimes they covered more than one emperor, so it's not necessarily 10 emperors. Uh, <clears throat> that persecuted. We start the the list of them is Nero, would be the first one. Then there was a little space after him, and Domitian uh, was the next one. He's a couple decades later. In fact, that's this is the one who is in power right now. John is writing under exile. He's a he's a prisoner on Patmos under, and this is about the last year or so of Domitian's reign. Uh, after him will come Trajan. Will be the third. Uh, the fourth will be Hadrian. Um, uh, fifth, the fifth one will start under Marcus Aurelius, but it will go a little bit longer. There's a guy by the name of Decius, Valerius, and finally Diocletian. Um, those are the ten. So, so it's possible that he's saying ten days is referencing ten different persecutions. I don't know. Um, after Diocletian, uh, will Constantine will become the emperor and he will forbid uh, all persecution of Christians. And in fact, he will make Christianity the official religion of Rome uh, because his mother had converted. So uh, she had his ear and the ear of his father. <clears throat> There's also an interpretation, and this is interesting. This will look very um, likely in other places in Revelation. Again, I don't know if it's talking about this, but there is a, a a, a day for a year um, is used at, in prophetic numbers many times. Uh, we find that in the Old Testament. We find it, I believe, in Revelation in, uh, under other circumstances. Uh, but where someone uses uh, a day, now if something happened for 10 years, you could say, well, that would be a persecution if I was going to suffer for 10 years. Um, the problem in that interpretation would be that this group of people is not going to have a 10-year period. Uh, for one, uh, they're almost at the end of Domitian's, which didn't go for 10 years. Uh, Trajan's, I don't know if they, uh, I know Trajan himself was not an emperor for 10 years. I don't know. And even under Trajan, who will come a little bit later, um, there was more subtle persecution. It was more legal uh, and things like that. Um, maybe some intimidation. It wasn't really... It wasn't really um, extreme persecution in that sense. However, uh, there is a period, the last period, the most notorious of all persecutions uh, of these 10 was a guy by the name of Diocletian. And his was uh, for 10 years. So I'm just giving you the possibilities. Um, it, 
it extends from about the year 301 until he dies in the year 311. It was exactly a 10-year uh, persecution, and it is the most notorious uh, of all of them. I know it's hard to imagine something more notorious than Nero, uh, but but his was uh, his was horrible. So <clears throat> uh, I would say in opposition to that, if if we were weighing the pros and cons, uh, that it seems that he's talking to them uh, here, but. The Bible does that. There's, there are places, again, if I was going to answer that, the Bible does give us prophecies of things. Uh, you know, the, one of the most famous prophecies is, uh, is in uh, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah speaks to this group of people, and he says, uh, he speaks to the Jews, and he says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, and, and, and all these things. And it sounds like he's saying, why, great things are going to happen to you. But the verse before that, he's telling them, uh, you're going to go into slavery for 70 years. Uh, and then your grandchildren are basically going to be the ones that come out. So, so he seems like he's talking to them, but he's not really talking to them. So, so it's hard for us to, to know exactly here. And it's a good thing that this 10 years is, is the, or 10 days is the least important detail in this. Just wanted to go through that and kind of look at how prophetic numbers can work. But there is an important note uh, for future reference. Uh, for us to know that um, prophecy is very difficult to understand. Um, they probably would have, at the point that this is given, they wouldn't really have any more understanding than, than, than we do of it. The prophecy is, is given in a certain way so that when it starts to happen, you understand it. Thousands of years later, with documents lost and, and things you know, we don't have all the history of everything that happened. We have general little brief moments. We might not see it. And, uh, and as John gives this, they might not understand it. Uh, they might be just where we are. Like, does this mean 10 years? 10, what, what does this mean? But when, when the thing comes, people tend to understand it. Think of Daniel. We talk, when we talked about Daniel, we talked about how uh, there's this fast goat and it was going to come across and no one would have understood that he was talking about how Greece was going to come across and, and destroy the Medes and the Persians under Alexander the Great and all this. There was no one. But as things started to move and happen, people could have understood that, oh, hey, this looks like what, what Daniel was saying. The same way when, when the disciples asked Jesus, about the, the destruction of the temple. When is these things going to happen? And he starts describing it. They wouldn't say, oh, so these are going to be all the things in Vespasian. There's going to be a guy named Vespasian, and he's going to have a son Titus, and they're going to come, and they're going to surround Jerusalem, and then there's going to be this, this period where we can, we can escape to the hills, um, and, and we'll just need to make sure that it's not on the Sabbath and all these things. They wouldn't have understood that until they start to see these things happen in Jerusalem you know, here we are, what, 40 years later, after, after Jesus gives them that warning. You have to be in the moment. Uh, and so I think that's a, a good note for us to understand, even as we go through the rest of the book of Revelation. What is important is the literal lesson about getting through uh, persecution. I want to look at their difficult situation because we say, even though they have nothing bad to say, there's nothing bad to say about them in particular, there's still the maintaining of light that Jesus is doing. Smyrna, as we said, is a, a church without significant moral flaws, but they do have obstacles. And, and even if there's, 
not internal flaws. We all have obstacles in life. And theirs is a particularly interesting one. He says the first thing he notes is their poverty. Well, that's interesting because Smyrna was a rich town. Smyrna was a port city. Port cities usually did fairly well. Um, and it was one of the vital ones on the coast of, of Turkey. And so it would be a statistical anomaly for, uh, for this group of people. Not, if, you have a, if you have a society and you have a church within that society, it tends to be that the church will tend to look like the group that uh, uh, is, surrounds them, right? Whether it be racial makeup or whether it be uh, the level of affluence so, or whatever it is, uh, you'll look like a, approximately what the society around, because that's from whom the church is taken. But we have an affluent society and we have a poor church. And that's not, that's just statistically to say, there's something there, right? What is the there? Well, why is this? And I think it has to do with persecution. Uh, I think there's something happening. And we talked about the, the legal uh, type of persecution, the intimidation and the, the things that were going on. This church's poverty might be explained by the things happening in their particular community. Uh, and, and, and so he addresses this, and I think that's their problem. They need to learn how to get through the persecution. I want to look at their opposition. We, we know of two oppositions that they have. Uh, one is ob the obvious, right? We, we've spent some time now talking about persecution on Rome, whether the one they're already in or the ones that are coming. Uh, and uh, there's going to be a brief pause uh, as Domitian is going to die within a year. There's going to be a pause uh, uh, with a guy named Nerva, um, who was going to be the emperor. But he's only going to be an emperor for a couple of years. And then Hadrian is going to take over. And what Hadrian does, Hadrian is, these persecutions looked a little bit different depending on, on who they were. Hadrian didn't really want to, uh, get into the persecution himself. He's going to let local authorities kind of handle it. So, so you'll have areas that are persecuted heavily, and you'll have areas that aren't persecuted at all, um, as the governors administer their own policies. Uh, and, and so, um, this might be an area that's going to suffer, or already suffering, locally, uh, a little bit more severe. Um, so, so that's coming, but there's another thing that's happening here, and I think this, this might more explain their poverty. He talks about this synagogue of the Jews. Now, he's not talking about them personally. Um, he says, I know the, the blasphemy of uh, the, those who say that they are Jews. Uh, they are not truly. They are a synagogue of Satan. That's in verse 9. Now, God does not refer ever in our New Testament to Jews as blasphemous, just as a general group. 
what I mean by that is, if we go back and, and look in the book of Acts, uh, Paul goes to Berea. And wherever Paul goes, if you remember, he would always go to the Jews first. He'd go into the synagogue. And if you remember, he, he compliments the Jews there. He says uh, they were more noble-minded, right? Uh, because they would listen to us, and then they would verify. They would, they would search their Hebrew Old Testament Right? in the synagogue there, and, and, and verify that Paul, Paul quotes this, uh, this thing from the Old Testament as a prophecy, and they would verify it. They would like, we know where that's in the scroll. You know, we know where that's it. And then they would pull it, and there it is. And, and so he calls them noble-minded, and he, he compliments them. So, so God didn't say, well, just because... And I think there's a, there's a part of Christianity where we, just, we think Jews are the enemy, uh, in, in other words, the Jewish faith is, is the enemy. And it's not. God didn't look at it as an enemy. God looked at the Jewish faith as a gateway to Christianity. And, um, and so he doesn't just say all Jews uh, are, are you know, I, know, I know you have to deal with them Jews. Right? That's not what he's saying. There's a specific group of Jews in this area that are notorious for something. And I don't know... The details, again, we have few details. We might be able to piece some things together. Uh, but uh, if, we, if we look at um, history right, of any group, right, groups go through a metamorphosis. So let's look at American history for just, just to take an example. If you go back through um, and, and look at how... Uh, you know what? Not quite 200 years ago, we had a, a time in this country where one group of people thought that they could own another group of people. That that's 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 horrible, right? Um, that was very that was a vile thing. Well, that changed legally, and that generation that did that died off, and and so there was a new generation of people that that moved. They shifted. And they thought, well, okay, we can't own this group of people, but we don't have to let them vote. Well, then we move past that. Okay, but they, we can let them vote, but they can't uh, go to the same places. And so, so a couple generations, they're still saying, well, you can't go to the same restaurants as we go to. And there's this evolution as, as they... They, they move through, right? And, and if we look at the history of the first century, right? And there was a problem within the church called the Judaizers. They were a group of Jews that said, uh, you have to become Jewish to become Christians. And, and I don't think this is an internal group with the church. I think this is an outside. But, but just kind of follow with me as we look at the evolution of Jewish presence in the first century as, as they relate to Christians. Uh, so you have this really opposed thing. And, and as we go through uh, the first century, we see a diminishing of maybe some aspects of the original Jewish position. There's a metamorphosis uh, over these periods, over this period of you know, close to 100 years, to where we get to a point where in 70 AD, we talked about the destruction of Jerusalem. The, there's this 
shift away from what we call Orthodox Judaism. In other words, the, the, the temple is no longer important because it's destroyed. A, a lot of the, the, the priesthood has been scattered, and a lot of the things that, that made up the sacrifices, they're not keeping the sacrifices. And there's, Jerusalem is no longer the central point of, of Judaism. In the absence of a, a, a dominant Jerusalem, a city has emerged as the center of Judaism. And that was Alexandria in Egypt. And Alexandria, though it was in Egypt, was a center for Greek philosophers. And the Jews that were there, this is, remember, this is where Apollos is from, right? Uh, the, the, he became a Christian. Uh, and, and he comes with some different ideas that has to be straightened out. But, uh, but there's a ton of Greek thought there. And I think that gets into what we're talking about. He says the synagogue of Satan, they, they have a name like they're Jews, they, 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 they're, but they're blasphemers. And Greek philosophy had kind of gotten into Jewish thought so that it was no longer that pure, noble-minded kind of Judaism that 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 had been brought up that God could at least say, at least they have the right idea about God. They didn't. They had an idea about God that was, had Greek philosophy mixed into it. And as some of them become Christians, they will become what we call the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were these Greek Jewish uh, people that became Christians. And they brought in these ideas about God and that there was a good God and there was bad God. And, and the, the bad God was the one that was physical. Uh, and they have all these ideas. And John spends some time talking about that. that. That's in the world at the end of the first century. There's this cultural shift. And, and I think that's what this group of people had to deal with. Well, there's one more aspect of their persecution I think that's important. Remember what's happened to the Jews. They've been persecuted too. They've had their city destroyed. They're not Christians. They had their city destroyed. And you might think, and I want you to think back to high school, right? Uh, I want you to think back to high school, and, and different people were in different groups. I was in one of the persecuted groups. I was small. Uh, I was you know, not athletic. I was, I was not in any of the groups. I wasn't rich. I didn't fit into any of the groups that would be popular. I'm not particularly good looking, as you know. And uh, so, so I had nothing to offer any of the, the good, the higher groups, right? So I got into one of the persecuted groups. And um, this is kind of how high school goes, I guess. And you would think that the persecuted groups band together. We can all band together uh, and, and try to have something, but that's not how persecuted groups work, right? Persecuted groups work to try for, for, for survival. And, and so what we do and what we did and, uh, is, is try to pick on each other. That's what happens in, in, with persecuted groups. And so, so if you're the skateboarders, you know, you're kind of an outcast group, you pick on this group and, and, and all whatever the groups are that you, you found. Uh, there's, a, there's an old joke that the two guys are in the woods and, uh, and they see a bear. Well, one guy takes off running. And, and the other guy says, 
you can't outrun a bear. And the other guy says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> you know, and, and there's that idea where I, I just, and then the Jews kind of like that. They just, they just had to outrun the other group to get away from persecution of Rome. And so, so they would help Rome. They would, you know, maybe point out where the Christians were. Hopefully, hopefully they'll take the heat off of the Jews. Instead of working together, instead of becoming, you know, some kind of coalition of sorts, they kind of, hey, those Christians over there, that's really where you want to focus your attention on. And so, so they had kind of this double opposition, the Christians did, uh, not just from Rome, but from, from the other persecuted groups. And they use the Christians, God's saying, use it to your advantage. And we're going to talk about another church that, that has a similar statement, has a similar uh, setting, similar circumstance. But in using it to our advantage, because culture is always like this. There's, there's always a culture that, or a part of culture that opposes Christianity. There always has been. It might, it might be like, like Nerva, where, where you have a period where it's not really that bad, and then it kind of gets worse. And uh, if you live in a situation, you know, a lot of, a lot of people were raised, I was talking with someone uh, about this the other day, you, if you live in a circumstance where, uh, we live in a circumstance where a lot of things that we're seeing, you and I are seeing for the first time. Like, my goodness, this has never happened. Uh, and even someone pointed out where it's even among Christians, it's even in the church where you have groups of, of Christians against one another and you can hardly talk with people about things. And, and I said, you know, the problem is, is that most of us were raised in, in this period of ease. I don't know how you want to represent it. If you want to represent it, it was up here. It was, it was good. We, we lived here. Uh, and now we're, we've come to a point in culture where it, we're down in the valley for this. But, so, so to us, it's always been good. But, but if you lived under a number of circumstances, you would not say that it was always good. If you were our, my, my grandparents and, and you you know, or my great-grandparents who, who saw World War I, the Great Depression, and World War II, you, you, might not, you might not think it was always good. That, for them, life was always bad. And then they go through a relative ease of, of the 50s and the early 60s, and they like, wow, things are getting good. Right? That's how they looked at it. Um, and you say, well, what about between Christians? Well, if you were uh, raised and you saw the Civil War, and you saw how Christians in the North and Christians in the South literally despised each other. That, that we still deal with things between the North and the South. Issues that cropped up in the 1800s still affect the churches of Christ today. We still deal with it, and I've dealt with it. I know because I was raised in Massachusetts and moved to Texas. And maybe it's not like that, you know, that was like that in 1985 and maybe it's less. But I'm telling you that, that, that if you lived in that period of time, 
it might have always been bad and, and, and you might have taken a while for you to feel the good. Right? But we look at our thing, oh, it's, it's always been good and now well, we get to be in a period where it's not. And that's just the way history has always gone. There's periods of good and there's periods of bad. So he says, you need to overcome. You need to overcome these obstacles. God as the, the Christ is the, the one who's monitoring and maintaining their light is telling them it, it's not just light, it's, it's the right kind of light. At the height of persecution under these couple of hundred years, it's estimated that the city of Rome, just the city of Rome itself, was 10% Christian. Now, that might sound like a big number. It might sound like a small number. It depends on your perspective. If we looked at the United States without persecution, relatively speaking, if we looked at all the people who claim Christianity, it would be significantly more than 10%. Far more than 10%. I mean, adding up all the the denominations. At that point in time, there wasn't a lot of denominations. There was Christians. You might have had a group like we've talked about, the Gnostics. There was, that was an offshoot. That was a small group. There was a, a group, but we don't even know what they taught, called the Nicolaitans. Right? There's some offshoots at the, in the first century, but um, what kind of Christianity? If you were a Christian under persecution, you were a Christian. You were you had the right kind of light. You, you were dedicated to it. What kind of Christians do we have in America today? Growing up without persecution. I would say the quality of light that we have in the United States is a little muted, comparatively speaking. Persecution though it probably produced a lower overall number, probably produced a much brighter, purer light. He says, you are rich. You're poor, but you're rich. You see, the assets that they had wasn't in money. And we look at the advantages of money, and we look at the things that rich churches can do. Right? It would be nice. There are rich churches. And churches, they can, they can afford to do lots of things. You know, well, we don't have that. Well, then we have to look at what we can do. And that's what Jesus is telling them. Is he said, listen, you need to understand what you have. Okay, you're poor. For whatever reasons, they were poor. But you have advantages, and you need to look at what your advantages are, and you're going to have to use those. The oldest written account of a martyr. Now, there's martyrs, certainly, but the oldest account that we have concerns a man who died in 155 AD. He was an elderly man. Uh, They came to him under the orders of the emperor, and uh, they came in and they said... uh, we're here to arrest you. He says, well, first sit down. We're going to eat and drink, and then I'll go with you. So he, he fed the soldiers. In fact, on the way, the soldiers, 
wondered why in the world they were arresting this old man. Seemed pretty harmless. And I almost kind of regretted him. They brought him into an arena. And um, the proconsul was there and said, you need to recant. And he said, the first thing he says, say away with the atheists. We want you to say away with the atheists. The Romans believed in many gods. So for, to them, comparatively, a, a group of religious fanatics who only believed in one god was essentially an atheist. So what, what the proconsul was, was saying was, you know, denounce Christians, say away with the atheists, say, just, just say that. So the old man said, away with the atheists, and he, he pointed at the Romans. <laughs> because to him, they did not believe in God. That really didn't uh, satisfy the proconsul. And so he said, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. The old man said, 86 years I've served him. He's never done me any wrong. So how then could I blaspheme my king and my savior? The reports are, whether they're true or just legends have grown, that, that uh, he prayed as he was burnt at the stake, but he asked not to be nailed, that he stood there. I don't know if that happened or not, or some, some stories just become better as generations tell them. But the essential event happened, and it was a man by the name of Polycarp. He is the angel to whom this portion, these four verses, was written. He was the preaching elder in the church of Smyrna. He was a student of John. I think as he was standing there that these words are resonating him, with him close to 60 years later. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Some you'll throw in prison. Some of you will suffer persecution. Some you're going to die. Be faithful unto death. And I think Polycarp took this personally. See, he had an asset. And this church had an asset in this man, Polycarp. An, an asset that not too many had. He teaches a man by the name of Irenaeus, who was influential. And just a, a long history is interesting. We talked last week about Ephesus, how Ephesus was destroyed. God says, listen, you, you better fix what's right or I'm going to remove your lampstand. Most of these churches, if you Google Ephesus or Pergamos or Thyatira, most of these, if you Google them, they'll say, such and such was a city, such and such was a city. Such and such was a city. They're all destroyed. If you, the first picture you look at is a picture of ancient ruins. God makes a promise. I think his promise is important. Because Smyrna never was destroyed as a church. 
or as a, excuse me, as a city. Here we are in the middle of a heavily Muslim population, eventually. Uh, a city, even today, where we've talked about having people in prison who are Christians. A man by the name of B.W. Johnson visited this city in the late 1800s. This city never lost a Christian presence, ever. Thousands of years throughout the Crusades in which people who claimed to represent Christianity did not win. And in the late 1800s, there were 70,000 people who still claimed in this one city, not in Turkey, in Smyrna, 70,000 people who claimed Christianity. It's now Izmir, and it's never been destroyed. Not completely. Oh, and God makes a promise. He makes a promise. If he says, you better fix what's happening, or I'm going to take your lampstand away, he's going to do it. He did so with Ephesus. But if he promises, listen, you overcome, and you've got some assurances, work with what you've got, and I'll work with you, then God delivers. And so there's not a lot of negatives for these people other than the outside obstacles. Sometimes the obstacles are not internal. Sometimes the obstacles are, are external. We may be moving into a time in our culture where we face a lot of external things as Christians. God says, be faithful unto death. I don't know that it will get to that point. I don't know that we're going to look like first, second, third century Rome. But hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Even if that were to get to that point, you have the assurance that you will not be hurt by the second death. And so what I want us to do as we leave, as we close, is to look at your greatest obstacles. What are your greatest obstacles in your life or in the life of the church as it affects us in, in a community or in a country? As things develop and as things unfold, we talked about that, that as things come along, the picture gets clear what, what, what things are going to look like, whether we're specifically prophesied to or just what's going to happen. It'll get clear. Maybe three years from now, we're just, this was all a bad dream. Or maybe not. Maybe it was the start of something. Who knows? It'll clear up. That picture will get clear. But whatever happens, whatever our greatest obstacles are, can be our greatest tools in showing genuine light. Their opposition, their persecution became an incredible opportunity for them to show what Christ really means. If they were willing to stick with Christ, being burnt at the stake, that meant something to the people who watched it. Wow, that, that person's willing to do that. What does that mean to them? If, if they see that it's not important, that, that anything can come along, 
and can take the place of, of what I believe and what I say. Oh, it's important just so long as I don't have this, con you know, this thing is more convenient at that moment in time. That won't affect anybody. So look for your greatest obstacles. And then look for the way that you can use those greatest obstacles to show pure light.